Thank you, Troy. <clears throat> well, everybody got an extra hour of sleep last night. So I don't want to hear any snoring today. I <laughs> did. Joey said he didn't get any extra hours. Uh-uh. He takes advantage of these extra hours. You know? Yeah. He's a worker. Work for the night is coming, Jesus said. That's right. Well, we have a big election coming up this week, but I want you to know something. As excited as our country is about that election, I'm much more excited that we've been an elect in Christ Jesus. Amen. That God has elected us in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Because when this country is gone, and one day, guess what? It will be. The kingdom of God will stand. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and the only thing left will be the kingdom of God. And those who are citizens in that kingdom will be those who inherit the earth. And uh, we will have, there, all the nations will be flooding, as scripture says, will be flooding into God's kingdom to recognize God's glory, and we'll have a part in that. So, uh, <clears throat> But we're here temporarily, and we have to deal with temporary things. And, that's one of the things that we're going to see today in our passage. So take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 16. How to use the world's goods. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to cover, I believe, verses 1 through 14. We may go a little less than that. I'm not sure, just depending on the time. And this is called, if you have a uh, title over chapter 16, you should have something that says... Uh, the parable of the unjust steward or something of that nature. And this is absolutely the hardest parable that Jesus taught. It's very difficult to understand, uh, difficult to interpret, and the teaching is so revolutionary that it disturbs you. Now, we've been through a lot of Jesus' teaching that's very disturbing. This goes to the next level and will make you angry. Unfortunately, your anger will be directed toward me. Don't throw any stones. I didn't say these words. Jesus said these words. But the reason that we get angry over this, in fact, I will go as far as to say that this parable is so difficult that you never hear anybody preach it because it's so hard to interpret. So I've sort of committed to going through Luke verse by verse, and though I can't skip this passage. And I'm forced to interpret it for you. But let me show you why people get angry. If you look down at verse 9, here's what Jesus said. This is the lesson, basically, of the parable. He said, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Why? So that when you or it fails, you may receive, that they may receive you into an everlasting home. He gives us instructions that we're to use ungodly mammon in order to enter a heavenly home or an eternal home. That's pretty strong language. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to get some perspective on this. Now let me remind you a little bit about the remote context of this passage uh, chapters 12 through 16, Jesus deals with money. And he also deals with who you eat with. He deals with money, 
and who you eat with, chapters 12 through 16. Fortunately, we're going to be finished chapter 16 soon, and we will get into less offensive things, like Jesus' death on the cross. Now, money, just by way of review, money and who you eat with determined your identity in the Bible times. They were boundary markers. They set your status as a person in society. You ate with certain people. You spent your money on certain things. How much money you had determined your status. Whether you were in the upper echelons, whether you're in the third 3%, whether you're down lower, on the economic scale, it determined where you were in the economic pecking order and who you ate with determined also your social status. If you were a person who was very high class, you ate with people of high class. And people were always trying to move up that social scale. And you would do that maybe by making a gift, for example, uh, in the name of Caesar. Uh, maybe uh, sponsor some big project in the name of Caesar. And uh, here you make this million-dollar gift in the name of King Caesar. And when that happens, your name becomes a household word. Did you hear what Warren Buffett did? <clears throat> he just gave $3 billion to, the, to a foundation. Now, what does that do? That name gets around, and then suddenly you're put on the A-list. And so when there are parties, you're invited to those parties that the, the top in the social scale uh, had. But you could, also be, you could also move down that social scale. You could go from the A list to the B list. And we've talked about that, but I wanted you to understand that because you need to understand that in order to understand the parable. Without understanding that, you miss the whole meaning, and that's why people don't deal with this parable. They don't understand the background for the most part. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 16 and verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. <clears throat> now notice who Jesus' audience is here. Here he's speaking to his disciples. Remember back in 15 and verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so he spoke the parable to them, the Pharisees and the scribes. That was the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. He speaks that to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now in chapter 16, look how the audience shifts. He now says to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees are still there. They're listening in on the conversation, but the lessons were not so much for the scribes and the Pharisees as they were for the disciples. Now that doesn't mean everyone who believed in him. Remember, this is part of what we call the journey narrative. Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem and crowds of thousands are following him. Some are think that he might be the Messiah. They are aligning with him. They call themselves disciples. That doesn't mean they're regenerated. That doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're not antagonistic against him. They're for him, in a sense. But that doesn't mean they're committed. Because a lot of these people will drop by the wayside when he faces the cross, won't they? Save us now, they will say in the triumphal entry. Five days later, they will say, crucify, crucify. So just because they're designed or designated as disciples here in verse 1 doesn't mean they're fully committed. And you'll see how he addresses these people and addresses us. 
So he says there was, said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now we see two characters here. We have a rich man, a man of wealth, and he's a big landowner. And we will see from the text that that's the case. He owns a lot of property. He's very wealthy. The second character is his steward, or the one who manages the rich man's estate. Called a household manager or a steward, and he has authority over the rich man's possessions. The rich man doesn't handle all of his possessions. Rich people don't handle their, take care of their own books. They don't make all their own deals. They have people doing that for them. They have people investing that money. They have people watching out for them. And this steward handled all the rich man's possessions. Now, as a result of his relationship with the rich man, what do you think that does for the steward's social status? It raises it. He has a higher social status. See, that's why if you don't understand the background, you'll never understand the parables. All the parables are built on this in the Gospel of Luke. So his social status has been raised immensely, and he likes his social status, and so would you if you were in these shoes. In fact, many people, many of the household managers were slaves, not Civil War type of slaves, not that kind of slavery. Uh, some of the slaves in the Roman Empire were very educated people, but just because you were educated, that didn't mean you can go out and get a job like you can in America. They didn't have jobs like that in America. And so what they would do, these educated individuals, uh, in order to gain social status, would sell themselves into slavery to a rich person and manage that rich person's affairs. So these were kinds of jobs that people sought and would actually sell themselves into slavery to get. Now what you have here is you have the rich man and the steward, and watch what it says at the end of verse 1. And an accusation was brought to him, to the rich man, that this man, the slave, was wasting his Goods. Here is the rumor. The rumor comes back to the rich man. Hey, your manager's wasting your goods. Uh, the word wasting means squandering your goods. Word is The Greek word is only used twice in the New Testament. Once here and once for the prodigal son. Remember what it said about the prodigal son? And he wasted his goods. He went out and he wasted all of his goods on wine, women, and song. Remember that? So here it says, the rumor gets back to the rich man that your manager is wasting your goods. And that, by implication, means he's spending your money on himself. He's spending what doesn't belong to him on himself, and he is just, he's irresponsible. Does that sound familiar? Think of the people who work for the Dallas School Board, and they go on these trips. And guess what they're doing with your money? They're wasting your money. They're squandering your money. Uh, on what? On gambling in Las Vegas. <laughs> on call girls. On $400 hotel rooms. On $100 meals. Don't think it didn't happen in those days. It happens today. So that's the rumor. And uh, evidently the owner is very upset. So look what he does. Verse 2. So he called him, he called that steward, and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? And uh, it means, what is this I'm hearing about you over a period of time? This wasn't just he heard it from one person. He's gotten this over a period of time, and he's pretty certain that it's true. What is, though, he, he confronts the steward. 
what is this I hear about you? And look what he tells him to do, verse 2. Give an account of your stewardship. In other words, let's see the books. Let's see the books. That's what the stockholders should have said to the people who are running Enron. Let's see the books. That's what we should have said to the managers of Fannie Mae. Let's see the books. Let's see the books. Give an account of your money. We want to see where it was spent. Prove where you spent the money. Now look what he says right at the end of verse 2. He says, because for you can no longer be my steward. <coughs> he fires him. He fires him. It's like some of these bank presidents should have been fired without golden parachutes for the way they took your money that you put in to their banks and loaned them to people who couldn't afford houses. All based on greed. They wasted money. Our economy has gone right downhill. Billions have been lost because of greed. And so he fires him. And he wants an account. He says, I want to see the books. I want an audit of the books. You show me how the money's been spent because you're no longer my manager. Now, even though he fires him on the spot, it's not like he makes him clean out his office that very day. He has to come up with the books and present that. So there's a little lag period here, and you're going to see this. It's very interesting. But you know what this means to the steward? Watch this. Remember what it's taken to get this job, and now I say to you, you're fired. What does that mean to that man? Uh-oh, he's going down the social scale. He doesn't want to be there. What is he going to end up being? I can tell you what, he'll be a peasant. You don't want to be a peasant. So he realizes this, and his authority, he's going to lose all of his authority, and he has to show the books. And so look what the steward does. Look at his reaction in verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship from me, And I can't dig ditches. Well, sure he could dig ditches. I mean, he didn't want to dig ditches. No. I can't dig. I can't beg. Oh, sure he could go out in the corner and beg. What's he mean? He doesn't want to beg. He doesn't want to be a peasant. He doesn't want to be a day laborer. He wants to be a steward. He wants to keep his status. Well, he should have thought of that beforehand. See? So... He asked this question. It's a very important question. Look right in the middle of verse 3. He says, what shall I do? That question is repeated seven times in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts. What must I do? What shall I do? First time it's used, remember? John the Baptist comes preaching on the scene. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the people said, what must we do? He said, well, if you have two cloaks, when you see somebody doesn't have any, give it away. Remember that? We dealt with that early on. 
So what must I do? Guess what the answer is? Help the poor. See, that's why we always call Luke's gospel the gospel to the poor. Help the poor. And then you have the young lawyer we saw back in chapter 10. And he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know what Jesus said? In the Luke's version? In Luke's version. Not in Mark's version. In Luke's version. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And guess what the Good Samaritan does? Takes what is his own and helps somebody who's helpless who can't help themselves. Uh, what did the Pharisee do? Oh, he walked by. Can't be concerned with that. Uh, what did the scribe do? Levite. Walked by. But a despised Samaritan. A half-breed. Took of his own substance and met the person's need. Now remember the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says to his disciples, and you go out and do what? Yeah, go out and do like what? Now, what we have is we have this, what must I do, <clears throat> statement. And we see it seven times. Usually it has to do with the kingdom of God and eternal life. And I think this is the way Jesus is going to use it. Because one of the times he uses that statement, he tells the story of the rich man. Remember the rich man, the farmer, who had su such a bumper crop that he, he didn't have room to store up his crops, and he said, what can I do? And Jesus' answer would have been, well, you got extra, give it to the poor. Mm -hmm. But what was his answer? I'll build more barns. I'll keep it for myself. Jesus said, thou fold. Tonight your soul is going to be required of you. And that money will fail you. It will do you absolutely no good. And then what does Jesus do? He goes and tells the disciples to sell all, your, all that you have and give alms to the poor. Remember that? That was the big message we had when we said, what word there don't you understand? Sell. So I think it does have to do with the kingdom. And so here's a guy who says, what can I do? And so he has to come up with a solution in light of this situation. He's going to lose his job. He doesn't want to lose his status. So he says in verse 4, I have resolved what to do. So that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. I've got a plan that when I lose my job, there will be people who will take me into their houses and show me hospitality, and I won't lose anything. Status And here's the plan. Look at verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. Every one. Now this guy's rich. He has 50, 60, maybe 100 debtors. So this is the guy's plan. He calls all of his master's debtors to him. And he said to the first, uh, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And so he said, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write, I owe you 50 measures of oil. Cut the bill in half. <clears throat> and then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures a week. 100 measures a week. 
And he said to him, take your bill and write 80, 80 measures of wheat. Now I want you to notice a couple things. This is his plan. What's his plan? His plan is that when he gets fired, people will receive him into their house and he'll be taken care of even if he doesn't have a dime coming in. So notice what he does. He goes to, and he only gives us two specifics, but there are hundreds of people probably that owe his master uh, a debt. And so I want you to notice what they owe. What does the first man owe? He owes oil. The second man owes wheat. Most likely what we have, and the oil there is not crude oil, it's olive oil, okay? <laughs> he owes a lot of olive oil, which shows you that these people are tenant farmers. They are farming the rich man's land, and in return, they have to pay the rich man a certain portion of their profits. And uh, the first guy owes X number of barrels of oil, and the next guy owes so much measures of wheat. Now, also notice what the steward does. He renegotiates the contract. And he says that to them, uh, how much do you owe? The guy said, I owe a hundred. A hundred measures. Now, why did he ask the guy how much he owes? He knows how much he owes. He has the books. <laughs> he knows exactly how much they owe. Why does he ask them how much they owe? He wants them to say it. guy's very slow. He wants them to agree with his books exactly how much they owe. And then what he does, he says to them, okay, here's what I want you to do. Look what he says in verse 6. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and what? Write. I owe you 50. He wants them to write it in their own handwriting and sign an IOU for half that amount, right? And look how he asked them to do it in verse 6. Take your bill and sit down how? Quickly. Quickly do it. Quickly. Why does he say quickly? Well, time's running out. I mean, he's only going to have control of this situation maybe for a few more days. He's losing his job at the end of the week or whatever. So in this lag time between the time he has to show his owner the books, he is working feverishly to <coughs> renegotiate these contracts. Now, by renegotiating the contracts, something happens. <coughs> See? On what basis is he doing this? On what basis is he renegotiating? What right does he have to renegotiate the contracts? What right does Fannie Mae have to renegotiate loans that they made a few years ago? Well, they just do it. That's why. He's doing it because, you know why? He can do it. He can get away with it. And he has to get away with it quick because his authority has actually been taken, been taken away from him. But guess what? These people don't know his authority has been taken away from him. So he's getting them to renegotiate this contract, and he's doing it for a reason. What's the reason? <laughs> Remember back in verse 4? Why did he do this? I've resolved what I will do, that when I am put out of my stewardship, they will receive me what? Into their homes. See, he is basically getting them indebted to him. Now, I want you to watch this. It's very interesting. What he is doing is he is 
reorienting his life. This man is going to reorient his life. He's foregoing immediate satisfaction. Before he had his boss's money, he could just spend it any time he wanted. He had immediate satisfaction. He's foregoing the immediate gain for long-term gain, gain in the future. When he loses his job, these people will accept him into their home. And by doing this, by, by giving them, renegotiating their loans, he's making them indebted to him, and he's entering into what's called a patronage relationship with them. He has now become their benefactor. He's freed them from half their loan. And as a result, they become his debtors. That's how the patronage system worked. <clears throat> that was patronage. I become your benefactor, and then guess what you have to do? You owe me in return. And what he's going to make sure of is that they'll have a place for him to stay and eat. And since there are probably 50 or 100, who knows how many people there are, hey, he's taking care of for the next year or so. <laughs> so that's what he's doing. This is just the tit for tat, what we call the good old boy system. I'll pat your back, and then guess what you can do? <laughs> you pat mine. I'll take care of you, but look, guess what? You take care of me. That's what you're trying to do. And we still have it around today. So when he gets fired, they're going to take care of him. It's a reciprocal relationship. Remember that the patronage system that we talked about in past weeks was a reciprocal relationship. If I invite you to dinner, then guess what you're going to do? Invite me to dinner. If I do something for you good, you're going to do something good for me. So that's what we have here. And the steward is basically taking advantage of this lag time to do that. Does that make sense? Now, look at verse 8. Look at the result. So all that happens... And evidently, now it's time to show the books. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. The master commended the guy he had just fired because he had dealt shrewdly. He didn't commend him for cheating him before, not his previous actions, but he does commend him for his subsequent actions. Now, what we think, and we're not certain of this, is that when you had, a, had, when you had contracts with people, for example, the steward took care of all of his boss's contracts, he probably had a little fee in there for, his, for himself. Remember how the toll, collect, uh, the toll tax collectors and toll collectors took care of themselves? You wanted to go through, there was a certain fee to get onto the toll road, but they also skimmed off a little bit. And probably what this guy had done is he renegotiated the contracts, and he just took his fee and he just cut it right off immediately, what he was skimming off the top. Probably his owner gets everything that's really owed to him. What he's giving up is what he's going to get immediately in order to secure his future. And that's what we have happening here. So the owner says, hey, you are to be commended because you acted shrewdly. Very interesting, the word shrewdly. 
It's the opposite of the word foolishly. It's an exact opposite of the word Jesus used of the rich man who built the barns when he said, you fool. That was not a shrewd thing to do. You fool. This guy says, you acted shrewdly. Now, now we have a commentary. <clears throat> Look in the middle of verse 8. This is the commentary. Look what it says. The master's no longer speaking. This is Jesus speaking. He says, for the sons of this world. Now, this is Jesus' lesson. If you want to know what the lesson is, here's the lesson. The sons of this world, literally the sons of this age, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Jesus is now going to make a comparison. This is what the what the uh, parable is all about. He's going to make a comparison between people who are committed to this age, people who live in this world and they don't think about the future, the future world, okay? this present age, okay? children of this age, and then children of light who are children of the age to what? To come, the future age, kingdom age. He's going to make a comparison between the lost person, this is how we would say it nowadays, and the saved person. Now, notice he says, the lost people, the children of this age, are more shrewd in their generation. They know how to secure their future. As long as they're here on this earth. They're wheelers and dealers. This guy used the manipulation and used every principle, worldly principle that he knew for his benefit. And that's how worldly people are. They're pretty shrewd. And he says, they're more shrewd than we are. Because we fail to use kingdom principles to our benefit in the future kingdom. So that's the comparison. Worldly people know how to use worldly principles to secure their future. Use modern day nomenclature. Christians don't know how to use Christian principles to secure their future in the kingdom. We're not as shrewd as they are. So this is what we call an eschatological statement. It deals with the kingdom. It deals with the future. Now he gives instructions. I say to you, that's these people who are following him. Here's his instructions for us. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Now is that what the steward was doing? He was making himself some friends, wasn't he? And he was using money to do it. To secure his future. But he had a problem. His problem is the problem that every lost person has. When they die, guess what? The money does them no good. Or even in their lifetime, there can be a recession. Or there can be a depression. And guess what? The money dries up and does them no good. <laughs> we see that happen. Now, here's what Jesus says to us. Here's his instruction. Use, you Christians, you who say you're followers of Christ, use unrighteous mammon. Why? That when you fail, and it should be when it fails, meaning when the money fails, they, that's the people you, that you make friends with, they may receive you 
into an everlasting home. So he's making a comparison. The guy who makes friends with money in order to get into their home while here on earth, Jesus says, we're used to use money to make friends that one day they will receive us. When that money is gone, when it fails, when it's exhausted, that they will receive us into an everlasting home. Now, who are we to make friends with? We are to use the world's money, which he calls ungodly or unrighteous mammon. Why does he call it that? Well, because it's part of this present evil age in which we live. He says, but you don't have to use it in an evil way. You can use it for good purposes. You can use the world's money. What money? Oh, the money has the eagle on it. The money has the picture of George Washington on it. It's like in Bible times. The money that had Caesar's picture on it. You can use that money. The money that's part of this world. Now, guess what? It's going to come a time when it fails, isn't it? Is it going to come a time when it fails? Yes. In fact, Jesus talks about money that rusts and it corrupts and moth gets in and it gives way and is exhausted. He says, you're to use this money to make friends. So that when it fails, now watch, you better do this quickly. Because it's going to fail. You better use it while you can. We had a lot more money three weeks ago than we had today. You should have used it when you could have. Use it to make friends. What kind of friends? Did you, who should you give this money to? People who can, in return, do something for you? No, in chapters 12 through 16, you know who you give the money to, don't you? The people who couldn't pay you back in 10,000 lifetimes. You give the money to the poor and the outcast and the rejected and the marginalized. Now, these are people who have been saved. These are the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes who have been saved, but they're still on the lowest economic ladder. But these people have been saved and they're trusting Christ. Give the money and meet their needs. As long as that money holds out, so that one day they will welcome you into their eternal home. They will welcome you into the kingdom of God. They will welcome you into eternal life. See, that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, does that make sense? That's why I say it's hard. It's a hard saying. It almost sounds like you can buy salvation, but it, it's not that. This is the Christian answer to the question, what must I do? What must you do? Well, here's what you're to do. Use the money and give it to people who couldn't pay you back, but one day can welcome you into the kingdom. You say, that sounds like works. No, this is what faith looks like. This is what faith looks like. This is what repentance looks like. John says, repent. They said, what should we do? Repent. He said, hey, let me tell you what repentance looks like. It looks like taking the coat off your back and giving it to somebody else who doesn't have one. Taking care of other people. That's, that is the fruit of faith. That's what it looks like. If you don't have this, then guess what? They're not going to welcome you into the kingdom. You know why? Because you're not going to be there. See, we have a choice to do with the money that we have, this ungodly money that we've got in our pockets. 
we can use it for ourselves, like the prodigal, like the man with the barns, or we can use it for eternal purposes. We can use it for selfish means in this life, or we can invest it in people so that it will have eternal benefits. Now let me just show this to you so that you are very clear to that. Look back at Luke 12 very quickly. Let me sort of sum this thing up. In the story of the man with the barns, I won't tell you the whole story, but I will give you the conclusion. The guy wonders what he's going to do, and he's going to decide he's going to build barns. And look at 12:19, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Just use all the goods and the money and the possessions that's going to take care of you. Man, you got a long retirement. But God said to him, one who's not very shrewd, <laughs> unfull, full, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? And the answer is, well, one thing we know, it won't be yours. So, is he who lays up treasure for what? himself, and is not rich toward God. And then he goes into a whole, you will remember this, he goes into a whole scenario about don't worry about anything, don't, don't worry, don't be anxious for anything, and his conclusion is found in verse 33 of that same chapter. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. What kind are they? Oh, here it is. Treasures in where? Heaven. That does not what? Fail. fail. You see, there's the money that does not fail when you use it for God's purposes. Treasures that do not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the question. What do you do with your money? Because that tells where your heart is. That shows and reveals the condition of your heart. And the lesson is, use ungodly money now, before it fails, before it runs out, for godly purposes. Put it in kingdom work. Provide for people who can't repay you back, and guess what you will do? Just like the steward, you will secure your future, not for this lifetime, but for the lifetime to come. They will welcome you into the kingdom. Now, let me tell you, this is a very important lesson, and... When you go back to chapter 16, let me just show you something. And I think I'll probably stop at this point. I probably could go on, but it would get too long. We'll just pick up next week. But what we have in this passage, the following parable, which starts in verse 19, chapter 16 and verse 19, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that? The rich man fared well. He ate and was in his royal robes and did all that he wanted to do. He spent all of his money on himself. And Lazarus, the beggar, he would have loved to have just a crumb off of his table. He was so in such bad shape that dogs came and licked his wounds. 
He couldn't even see a doctor. He didn't even have money for a doctor. But they end up dying. And guess what? The rich man's wealth did what? Absolutely nothing for him. And he died, and in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And where was Lazarus, that poor beggar? He was reclining on Abraham's bosom, eating at the table of Abraham in the kingdom of God. If that rich man would have used his money to help Lazarus, when the rich man died, Lazarus would have welcomed him into his home, into the kingdom. See, the story of the rich man and Lazarus isn't about whether there's a heaven or a hell. That's a doctrinal issue. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about how to use your money. <laughs> so what we have here is we basically see how Jesus tells us to use our money. So let me give you, this is why I say you, this, we don't like these kinds of lessons. And well, we'll be finished with them after chapter 16. <laughs> we'll just deal with them beating Jesus with a whip. These are like the easier things, right? So if I ask you, what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is in verse 4. See? I've got an idea. Hell, I could be received in other people's homes. I can secure my future if I act right now and I act quickly. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, and likewise, you use the same techniques, uh, only not on yourself. Give to people who can't repay you. And in the kingdom, they'll welcome you in, into your home, into their home. And so that's the lesson. That's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage, which is revolutionary. It is hard to understand. One of your hard parables. And uh, yet it convicts. It uh, causes us to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Are we acting like a steward? Are we securing our future, our retirements, our, as if this is the only life there is, and if we can get it all now, we can be secure for the next 30 years? What are we doing? Are we looking beyond that into the kingdom? Oh, Lord, help us to lay up treasures in heaven. In Jesus' name.